Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Have you ever been in a grocery store and watched a kid have like a big meltdown because they asked for something and the parent says no? Like screaming on the floor, kicking. Have you ever been that parent? Maybe I should ask that. Or maybe I should ask, have you ever been that child? The, the thing that can happen is that some parents, right, they just like, they're nonplussed. They don't care. They just go on with, about their, what they're doing. But other parents, you can see, they get really embarrassed. And that embarrassment tends to either turn into anger and they become harsh with the child, or that embarrassment becomes acquiescence. Like they just give in to stop this kid from making this scene so I'm not embarrassed anymore. Now, at first glance, it might be that this is what it seems like that the parable we have in Luke 18 is actually promoting, is what you should do in prayer. Just, just make a scene and keep on making a scene, and, and God will eventually acquiesce and give in. But there's so much more going on in this parable. So let me begin. Verse 1 of Luke 18, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not lose heart. And that place of, of not losing heart, that is, that is the essential piece. Now, if you think of a biblical understanding of our heart, right, it is, it's what makes us us. It's what makes you you. And in one sense, losing heart means you're losing yourself. You're losing part of who you are. And, and the reality is, is that it's easy to become discouraged or to lose heart when we are praying. Because we're praying and we don't see the answers, and maybe we don't get the answers that we want. And, and it can feel like nobody is listening and nobody cares. But the framework of this parable, it is not here are the instructions for how you get your prayers answered. The framework of this parable is how do you not become discouraged and lose heart? So if we look at... Um, at what is happening in this parable, we find that, that you have a contrast in the beginning, and there are two pictures of two people, and they, are, they couldn't be more different. On one hand, you have the judge. He is a man in a man's world. Uh, he has authority. He has wealth. He has power. Plus, it says in verse 2 that he neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Now, in a shame and honor culture, which the ancient Near East was, that is a harsh criticism. Because in a shame and honor culture, you don't say don't do something because it's wrong. You say don't do this because it'll bring shame on the family. And he didn't care. Like, I don't care if it brings shame on me or brings a shame on the family. Plus, he doesn't fear God. He has no expectation that there is a God of justice who will actually hold him accountable for what he is doing. So you have a judge here who basically feels free to do whatever he wants without um, anything that gets in his way. He has no honor. There is no goodness in him that you could appeal to. And, and the assumption would have been in that time that this was a judge who accepted bribes. And whoever gave more money got the favorable, um, favorable justice. And then the other side, you have this widow. Right? And, and the widow, the assumption is she's actually innocent, right? That, that her case is actually right. But it is a hopeless situation. Now, you know, in Scripture, widows are pictures of those who are poor and they're oppressed and they're powerless and they are vulnerable. So the widow is a woman in a man's world. 
She has no influence. She apparently has no wealth. She doesn't have any friends who could come alongside and plead her case. And the judge has no shame. You cannot appeal to him based on his honor. You cannot appeal to him based on the rightness of her case. You could not appeal to him because of his duty to God. And there is no higher court she could appeal to. In other words, everything is against her. In other words, her situation looks like it's hopeful or hopeless. And yet, in the midst of this, a situation that's hopeless, a situation where you'd be fully discouraged, the judge actually decides in her favor eventually. Why? He said, this woman literally is like, she's giving me a headache. I, I need to get her to stop. And so he does it just to get rid of her. Now, if, if you look at this widow who is in a hopeless and discouraging situation, and she gets justice, the picture here is, if she gets justice, then how much more will those who are children of God receive justice? Because we don't cry out to a, a, an evil and merciless judge who does not care about us. Verses 6 and 7. Listen to what the unjust judge says. And shall not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? So you have a contrast and similarities, right? So, so God is the judge and you've got the, the other judge. Both have power, both have authority. But the contrast is that, that God is actually just and right and good and he cares about us. Then you have the widow and there are similarities and there might be also a contrast. I mean, the similarity is, is there's the place of being vulnerable and helpless, but the contrast might be that, that actually our case might not be right. right. It might not be that we're actually innocent and we are pleading for justice because we have a, a cause for that. But in one sense, that's not what matters because God isn't deciding or bringing justice for us based on the righteousness of our case, but based on our relationship to him. Right? It's, not, it's not about us being right, it's about us being in a relationship to him. This is actually what you see that, that King David knew in Psalm 51 when he is asking for forgiveness. He does not appeal to God on the rightness of his case because he has no right case. Right? He appeals to God on God's mercy, on his tender compassion, on his faithfulness, on the fact that he's like, I belong to you and you love and you care for me. So it does say that God will bring justice. He will bring vindication for his people. And this is a, a key piece, right? This is not saying that he will give you a new car if you just keep on bugging him about it and don't give up. This is not saying uh, be the kid who throws a tantrum on the floor at the grocery store and eventually will give in. This is crying out for justice. This is a crying out for vindication. And the promise is that he says he will bring it quickly. I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Now that word quickly is actually the key word, I think, in this parable. Now there certainly is a place of understanding that, that God's quickly and my quickly are not the same. Right? He does not operate in the same understanding of time that I operate on. He does not follow my schedule or my timetable or my plans. 
He follows his plans. And there certainly is a place of understanding that quickly can certainly refer to that, and I think it does, right? That, that God's quick is not the same as our quick. But there is so much more going on in this word. You remember, if you're thinking about Luke, that in Luke chapter 9, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. In the very next chapter, he enters on the triumphal entry. He's heading into his journey. These are his last teachings before he enters Jerusalem and is crucified. That's coming quickly. The disciples didn't know that, right? But Jesus knew that, that this actually is what is, I think, being referred to when it's speaking about we will get justice and it's coming quickly. This is the place of, of Jesus going onto the cross, dying for our sins, his justice, uh, God's justice being poured out on him that we could then be justified. That's what you see in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. All that has condemned us, all that stands against us, is actually nailed to the cross. It is taken away. So we're looking at, at quickly. I think quickly is referring to what happened on the cross. But quickly isn't just referring to what happened on the cross where Jesus took our punishment, Right, Because the cross wasn't completed on Good Friday. That work wasn't completed on Good Friday. It also refers to the resurrection. Right? That his victory over death is our victory over death. His victory over all the forces of hell is our victory over all the forces of hell. His victory over sin is actually our victory over all the power of sin. When we understand this, we see that, that it's not just his cross, but it's also his resurrection, that this is, this is why we aren't discouraged, why we can have hope, why we don't lose heart. We see what happened on the cross and on his resurrection. But I think it's even more. This is actually referring also to his ascension, because the work of the cross is not completed until Jesus ascends to heaven. See, this is based on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. And when it was accepted, people knew their sins were forgiven. Jesus, this is what Hebrews talks about, Jesus is the high priest. He takes the blood of the sacrifice himself into the heavenly Holy of Holies. And there it is accepted. And there that work of sacrifice is complete. And because of that, he is now enthroned and seated at the right hand of the Father. But this is where I think we are to be encouraged. Because what it says now, that Jesus now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, Romans 8.34 says that he is always interceding for us. The foundation for our crying out to him, the foundation for our intercessions, is that he is always interceding for us. Right? That's why we have the ability to cry out for justice. That's why we have the ability to pour out. We know that he is always, he is always interceding for us. He is always applying his work into our lives. So there are a number of things this means. The first is, is what you find in, in Romans 8.1. Right? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan might accuse. He might bring charges against us. But Jesus' intercession silences those accusations. We know that we have no condemnation because of Jesus interceding always for us. 
But even beyond that, that Jesus is always interceding for us means that we know what Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, that the good work that he begins, he will bring to completion unto the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, the work that God starts in you, he will finish it. It is, it is not that, that Jesus dies on the cross and says, it is mostly done, I've given you a good start, don't blow it. It is finished. His victory over sin and death and the powers of hell is our victory, and that victory cannot be taken away. This is why we can say that more is gained in the resurrection than was lost in the fall. We know that his grace is greater than all of our sin, greater than all of our suffering, greater than all of our difficulties. And maybe the third thing, which we'll spend a little bit more time on, is that we know that Jesus is always interceding for us, which means that we know God is for us. We are not crying out to some judge who is, is evil. We are crying out to the Father who loves us as his children. So what you heard in Romans, that what we heard today in Romans chapter 8 and verses 14 and 15, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. This is why we don't get discouraged in prayer, because we can cry out, Abba, Father. That, that is a term of intimacy and of honor. Right? It's not intimacy at the expense of honor. It's not honor at the expense of intimacy. There is, it's a cry of a child to its dad. Abba, Father. This is why Jesus says, for example, in Matthew 18, that we must become like little children. Or if you look at the Apostle John in his letters, he writes to us again, uh, he calls us little children. There's something we need to learn in this that helps us to not be discouraged in prayer. So a little child has very little control over their lives. Like your little child might assert defiantly, I am not going, I'm not going. Guess what? You need to get somewhere. You're putting that kid in the child seat and he's going, right? Might not be a pleasant experience. But, but they actually don't have that kind of control. No matter what they assert, they don't have that kind of control. Now that doesn't mean that we don't have choice or we don't have agency. It's just that we actually have very little control of our lives. We do all that we can to insulate ourselves from that truth. We do all that we can to give ourselves an illusion of control. But cancer comes, or spouse dies, or you lose your job, and you realize how little control you have. But there is a God who does have control, and unlike this unrighteous judge, he is good and we can trust him, even when we don't understand what is happening. Now, this is not saying that we just be fatalistic and, and we just have to take whatever comes. It is this deep recognition that always more is going on than we can ever see. More is happening than we can understand. And that we can know that, that actually in all these things, he is working towards our good. I don't know if you've had this experience. I've had this more than I can count. But the places where you go through a hardship, a difficulty, and if on the front end, God would have said, hey, do you want to do this or not? I'm like, not pass every time. I won't do it. But on the back end, I wouldn't trade it. For how he worked, how he purified, how he met, how his grace came in and shaped us. 
See, there's this place of, of knowing that, that we have little control, but there is one who is in control, that more is always going on than we can see. That pulls us out of the place of saying, God, why is this happening to me? To the place of saying, God, where are you in this? Show me where you are. I need to see you in this. Now, child, not having control of their lives in one sense powerless means that they are dependent, right? Um, Jordan cannot say, hey, listen, um, Rosie, Levi, Junie, and um, Iris, the days of freeloading are done. <laughs> Get a job, pay rent, buy your food, right? Children are dependent, and we are also those who are dependent uh, for God on life. Now, we can fool ourselves into thinking we are independent. And there are ways that we do that because God gives us gifts and abilities and we use those gifts and abilities to do things in life. And we understand that by His grace, the rain falls on the evil and the good. And, and so we take that and we do work. But the reality is if His grace was withdrawn, all of that would disappear. We are actually dependent. And then even more... Uh, for life to the full, the true life, we are dependent upon Jesus for that life. That life does not come from our efforts. It does not come from our ability to control situations or manipulate people to try to get that life or what we can do to try to keep that life, protect that life. We are dependent. Life is a gift that God gives. That is good news. We don't earn it. It's not that we have to be good enough to earn it. It is actually a gift that he gives, not based on what we do, but based on what Jesus has done, which means that we don't have to live as if it's always up to us. When we understand the gift of life that we're dependent, what that allows us to do is it allows us to be thankful for the things that God has given us, for the abilities and the resources he's given us, and to offer those as he leads us to offer those, because we don't depend on them for life. We depend on him. It brings us that place of, of thanksgiving and offering who we are and what we have, because we know that we are dependent upon him. When we look at what it is to be a little child in a healthy family, not being in control, being powerless, being dependent does not create fear or anxiety. Maybe for the parents, well, we'll give you that, but for the child, does not create fear and anxiety. They are powerless and they don't have control and they are dependent. If you look at a healthy family, children know that they are loved and delighted in, that they're not just tolerated, that they're not put up with as some kind of nuisance. In a healthy family, a child is so sure of their parents' love and delight that they don't strive in order to be loved or be delighted in. Even when a child goes, hey, look at me, that's not to get approval. That rises from knowing they are approved and loved. I know you delight in me. Here's another way you can delight in me. Look at me. I delight that you delight in me. Because if they don't have an assurance of the parents' love and delight, if they actually are fearful, they feel tolerated, I'm going to tell you, they will not say, look at me. Everything you do is to hide. In a healthy family, children know that they are loved and delighted in. A little child 
who knows that they are loved and delighted in, is not self-conscious. Right? They are not living with this anxiety, wondering if they're always going to measure up. If you have been rescued by God, you are a child of God. You are a son or a daughter of the King of Kings, and he does not just tolerate you. He does not put up with you. He delights in you, which means that we don't have to be self-conscious. We are secure in who we are in Jesus, which means that we can be conscious of others. It means that we can be at ease in who we are, and being at ease in who we are creates a space for those around us to be at ease in who they are. In a healthy family, children have access to their parents, right? They don't slink in making excuses. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. And that confidence isn't based on being good enough because that was true, then nobody has access, right? It's based on what Jesus has done for us, making us those who are delighted in children of God. That we have access, we have, we have an ability to come before the throne of grace with an assurance. Right? We are not coming with presumption. Presumption is you owe me, I deserve this. But because of his interceding for us, we can have an assurance that we can enter into the presence of God. We have access. We don't have to worry about whether we have access or not. We have it through Jesus. If we believe that God merely tolerates us, we will never draw near. We will keep our distance. In a healthy family, a little child is not embarrassed to say what they want. If they're not self-conscious. A number of years ago, I asked my granddaughter, Audrey, what do you, what do you want for your birthday? Oh, pops, I want a castle. <laughs> she was not demanding a castle. Right? It was that she was secure in my love for her, in my delight in her. She could pour out her desire. Right? It was just, there was a freedom to be able to do that. She wasn't embarrassed. There wasn't a, a holding back. There wasn't like, you know what? I, I know a castle's a lot to ask for, and that might be too much, and, and maybe I'm not deserving of a castle. Listen, I'm just going to bury that desire. Buried desires always fester. And those desires that fester become our justification for our later sins. In a healthy family, children can pour out their desires to their father because they know that they are loved and delighted. And there's a place that there is a place of trust. And in that trust, there's a freedom uh, to not be embarrassed, to not be self-conscious, but to pour out. If you look at what Jesus is saying... The very last thing he says is, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Jesus now is taking this to his return, where everything will be set right, where all evil will be dealt with, and we will be in the new creation. And between his resurrection and that time of new creation, we will experience hardship. We will experience suffering. And yet he is still for us. He is working through us and through all things to bring about this new creation. This does not minimize our suffering, our experiences now. It just helps us to take a longer view. 
to know that, that Jesus is at work. There is more going on than we can see and that he bore all of our sin, all of our suffering, all of our pain so that we can stand fully restored on that day. See, these are the things that are meant to encourage us, uh, that, that we should be encouraged and not hopeless uh, when we stand before the God uh, and we call out in prayer that we don't lose heart, right? We can cry out and we know that our cries are heard not by an evil or fickle judge, but by a father who loves and delights in us as his children. We know that our intercessions, our crying out, has its foundation that Jesus is always interceding for us. And in that, we can cry out, Abba, Father, that place of intimacy, that place of honor, and know that we are heard, know that he is the one who is with us and for us, and that never changes. So as we come to confirmation, as we come later in the service to this table, we come as little children. Knowing that we're not in control. Knowing that we are powerless. Knowing that we are dependent. And that is not a cause of fear or anxiety. Because we know that we are not just tolerated, we're not just put up with, but we are delighted in and that we have access, that we have a good father who gives good gifts to his children. And that means we can come with an expectancy, we can pour out our desires and then receive what he has for us. This is always reminding us that life is the gift that we receive, that we come as children that we receive the life that he has for us, that we know his delight in us. And therefore, we don't lose heart. We don't lose who we are, no matter what the situation is that we are walking through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who loves us, that you rescue us, that when we are dead in our sins, you bring us to life. And by your grace, you make us the beloved children of God. Father, we ask that you would work these truths deeper into our hearts, that we would not be discouraged, that we would not lose heart. Father, we would come as children, knowing we are loved and delighted in and receive from you. And Father, I ask that if there is anybody here who has not yet been made a child of God, would you do that work this day? Bring your grace, bring your forgiveness, bring your delight and your love, making them new. That they could open their hands and receive from you this gift of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.